Thank you for downloading this episode of the Kol Hadash podcast. Whether it is a Beit Knesset, Beit Tefillah, or Beit Midrash, a synagogue remains a Beit Am, House of the People. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom explores the history of the Jewish synagogue that stretches back to ancient times, even before the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem. I want to tell you a tale of two synagogues. <laughs> and no, it's not the one that the man built on the desert island. He needed to have the one you would never go into. But of course, it's a tale of two synagogues. It's actually a tale of five synagogues. You know the joke about two Jews and three opinions? Well, why not five synagogues? The first is a pair of synagogues. One came from the other. In Detroit, uh, Detroit area where I grew up, the mainline old established Reformed temple was Temple Bethel. It was a classic Reformed temple. Pipe organs, originally sermons in German, and no bar mitzvahs. Populated largely by German Jews who did not want the immigrant riffraff who were speaking Yiddish to come into their well-established, proper, Reformed synagogue. But by the 1930s, it was tough to maintain that attitude because there were about 10 times as many Yiddish-speaking new immigrant Jews as there were German Reformed Jews to make up the population of the synagogue. And many of those Eastern European Jews came with an attachment to bar mitzvahs instead of confirmation and an attachment to the traditional Hebrew liturgy and not to English at this time. And so there was agitation within the synagogue, but the issue that ultimately proved to be the backbreaker was something called Zionism. The belief that there would be a Jewish state. The classic reform perspective was, we are American citizens. We are purely a religious denomination. And the long time senior rabbi of Temple Bethel was adamantly opposed to any inkling of Zionism. On the other hand, the junior rabbi at the synagogue was, in fact, a Zionist. Now, the senior rabbi was about to retire, and he said, under no circumstances will I be succeeded by a Zionist. And so what happened? That other rabbi, the junior rabbi, left and formed a new congregation called Temple Israel, <laughs> to tell the perspective. And they had bar mitzvahs from the beginning, and they welcomed in Eastern European Jews from the beginning, and surprise, surprise, today, Temple Israel is three times the size of Temple Bethel. That's one synagogue's tale. The second synagogue's tale is even more interesting. It's a congregation today that's known, in, again, in the Detroit area, as Congregation Beth Am. It's a conservative temple. But at one time, it was known as Congregation Beth Abraham Hillel Moses. We jokingly called it Beth and the Boys. <laughs> and it turns out that Congregation Beth Am, or Beth Abraham Hillel Moses, was in fact a merger of three separate congregations. In the 1890s, there was Beth Abraham, which was a Hungarian shul. And then there was Beth uh, Hillel, which was, I think, the Romanian shul. And then there was Beth Moses, which was the Moravian shul. But over time, those differences meant less and less and less, 
And so first it became Beth Abraham, and then Beth Abraham Hillel, and then Beth Abraham Hillel Moses, and then when the letterhead got too long, they shortened it to Beth Am. So there was many synagogues that became one, instead of one synagogue that splintered into many. In fact, Temple Bethel over the years has splintered off a couple of different junior rabbis forming their own congregations, including one assistant rabbi at Bethel whose name was Sherwin Wine, who started something else. Now, what is the synagogue? Where does it come from? Well, it has a lot of different names. We think of one name for this institution, but why should there be only one name? If there can be 17 different varieties in one town, one version in Hebrew is a Beit Knesset, a house of meeting or gathering. In fact, the word for the parliament in Israel is the Knesset, the gathering. But it's also sometimes referred to as the Beit, the Beit Tefillah, the house of prayer. Or sometimes the Beit Midrash, the house of study. And each of them is a part of what you would see in a synagogue, a house of gathering and meeting, a house of prayer, but also a house of study and learning. And in Greek, the term for this institution was the synagoga, which comes from the same root as the word synod, it's an assembly. Now, the synagogue has been a core institution in Jewish life for over 2,000 years. But today, at any one moment, only about 50% of American Jews are actually affiliated with the synagogue. In Israel, the numbers are much less. And regular attendance is even lower than 50%. Now, I have to say, with all of the challenges the synagogue has faced over history, and we'll talk about those, the synagogue as an institution is why I chose this life that I chose. I did not become a professor at university, and I was able to find a job, full-time even, studying and learning and celebrating and teaching what I love to do. It's a value the Jewish community has placed on this institution to make its center a center of learning, a center of culture, a center of wisdom and knowledge, a center for the people, but also a center not just for the people as individuals, but the people as a people. And for me, it was the opportunity to learn and to teach not only 18 to 22 year olds for the rest of my life, but to teach everyone. Now this evening, we're celebrating our membership committee. Our membership committee is in charge of reaching out to new people, but also reaching in to maintain the connections with the members who are already part of our congregational family. You see, the truth of a membership committee or of a congregation is that a synagogue is not just the building. And that's what I sometimes call the edifice complex. You get, so busy, you get so busy focused on the structure that you don't remember that it's not about the building, it's not about the ritual. It's the people that make the synagogue. It's the assembly, the gathering, the Knesset, not the bait. It's the Knesset, not where they assemble. And one of our challenges looking back at the history is we're so used to buildings and offices and bimas, platforms from which to read the Torah. The truth is that the synagogue has not always been the way we think of it today. Now, the synagogue began, believe it or not, before the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. There was still one Jerusalem temple that was seen as the center of Jewish life. But synagogues developed even before that temple was destroyed. And we know this not just from source material talking about it, but from the archaeological ruins that we found. Now, it's not always easy to tell it was a synagogue, but sometimes it is. 
because there are inscriptions and designs and elements that indicate this must have been used for a communal gathering purpose, a Beit Knesset. Now, why did Jews use synagogues when there was still a Jerusalem temple where they were offering animal sacrifices and everyone was supposed to attend three times a year? Well, the answer is, it was a long ways away. Now, today, if you're traveling in Israel and you want to get to Jerusalem from the north, you know, it's a two-hour drive. Not a big deal. Try it on donkey. Try doing it three times a year on a donkey. It's not going to work. Try getting there from Alexandria. Try getting there from Babylon. Well, just not reasonable. So you had to have some kind of institution that gave you a local flavor. You gathered at the ceremonial times. Even if you couldn't be in Jerusalem, you could gather at those times. Maybe you would read from the Torah. And not always facing Jerusalem. They didn't always orient themselves to Jerusalem in this early period. And we find many of the inscriptions that appear in synagogues from this early pre-destruction period use temple motifs, like the menorah of seven candles that we have here, or the incense shovel that was used to provide incense to cover the stink of all those animals that have been slaughtered and burned. Now, we haven't found many remains of synagogues from this period. There were two major Jewish revolts in the land of Israel, first in 66 to 73 of the Common Era, and then 60 years later, from 132 to 135. And so they were most likely destroyed in those periods, or occasionally they were repurposed for other uses. You may realize that the Roman Colosseum, when you go to visit it, used to be a full circle, right? And then part of it fell down in an earthquake in the 14th century, but they didn't rebuild it, because by the 14th century, they weren't sacrificing people to lions or having gladiators anymore. It wasn't in use. It was actually used for housing, believe it or not, uh, or occasionally for meetings in churches. Uh, but they took the stones and reused it to rebuild all kinds of other things, because stones are stones. Same as true for synagogues. They weren't seen as entirely holy, entirely unreusable for other purposes. Now, after the temple was destroyed, around the year 70 of the Common Era, the synagogue took off. And it's obvious why, because now there was a clear need for it. You needed to find some substitute. The temple was destroyed. There are no more animal sacrifices. What are we going to do? How will we perform our avodah, which means work, but also means service? And originally, avodah was sacrifices at the temple. But now, avodah becomes, as we understand it, a service of words. You don't sacrifice the animals, you sacrifice the words. You don't offer the animals, you repeat the passage in the Torah that tells you what animals to offer. I liken this to letting God know that you know what you're supposed to do even though you can't do it. Okay, God, I'm reading this text, so you know that I know that I'm supposed to be doing this, but you know why I can't, because you allow the temple to be destroyed, so just so you know that I know what I'm supposed to do, I'll say it out. But you have a ritual of repeating the same prayers exactly the same way. You have a musaf, an additional prayer on a Saturday as you had the musaf, additional sacrifice on a Saturday. Now you have the synagogue, as one rabbi put it, as a diminished temple. It's reduced, a step away. It's not the same thing, but it's as close as we're going to get. And again, when you dig in the ground and you find the actual buildings, you realize how wrong it is to look back only from written sources. I'll give you one example. It's often understood, incorrectly, that Jews have always been opposed to figurative art, drawing the human form. The thought is that we are created in the image of God, you are banned from making these images and idols, and so an image of a human being is like an image of God, you can't do it. 
But the truth is that when you look at these synagogues from this period post-destruction of the temple till around seven or 800 of the common era, you find a wide variety of approaches to what you do with the figurative art. Some of them include figurative art. Some of them include mosaics of the zodiac, even images of the sun god. Now, this isn't, again, the Judaism in a bubble. We had no contact with the outside world. It was all trait. We only studied the Talmud. Well, guess what? It isn't true, based on the evidence we find in the ground. So I want to read you a passage from a scholar of the ancient synagogue whose name was Lee Levine. And I have to confess, one of my major mistakes in college was that he came to teach a seminar on the synagogue at Yale when I was there, and I took a different class instead. It was a dumb class. <laughs> I fell asleep in that class, and I missed the world's expert on the ancient synagogue teaching them. Can't, can't go back. It's history. So here's what Lee Levine has to say about this diversity. You can find it in the Beit She'an area, where five synagogues dating from the 6th century are remarkably different from one another in their architectural plan, their art, and their inscriptions. Several synagogues <coughs> contain geometric decorations. That was fine because it wasn't an image of a figure. Another synagogue or prayer room had a more elaborate floral design and depictions of animals. That's safe because it's not, again, the human form. It was part of a complex in which an adjacent room featured one panel with scenes from Homer's Odyssey and another depicted the god of the Nile and Nilotic motifs, as well as a symbolic representation of Alexandria. So again, the, the Greco-Roman setting. In the nearby Beit Alpha synagogue, the mosaic floor displayed both Jewish content, like the binding of Isaac, and pagan motifs like Helios, the sun god, and the zodiac. And the fifth synagogue, located just south of Beit Shean, was the most conservative. There were no figural representations, almost no inscriptions other than Aramaic and Hebrew, and the only halakhic Jewish law inscription ever found in a synagogue that specified produce in the sabbatical year. So you get this wide variety in one area in the same time period of interpreting that issue of figurative art and what they choose to include, the kind of symbols they include, the cultural influences they demonstrate are widely varying. It's not only one version, one Talmud, one Torah, exactly the same. Now, beginning in this period, they do begin to face Jerusalem. You can almost imagine that facing Jerusalem became even more important when the Jerusalem temple was gone because now it becomes a substitute again. We're actually going. Now, some of the most fascinating details are to be found in the inscriptions left in the synagogue. Occasionally, we found benches or placards that were on the side walls. In the Sardis synagogue, which is a diaspora outside of the land of Israel synagogue, they found 86 different inscriptions. 79 of them were in Greek, and seven of them were in Hebrew. The Hebrew ones are limited and fragmentary, and the Greek ones are often extensive, now, the irony is, most of the Greek inscriptions honor the donors who contributed to the building. <laughs> Again, nothing is new <laughs> under the sun. Now, another interesting detail Lee Levine points out is that in Roman Palestine, only 4 to 5% of the women who are mentioned in inscriptions are synagogue benefactors. Nearly 30% of the donors cited in the Roman diaspora were women having contributed to the building of the synagogue, and not just in the sisterhood. I mean, they were really contributing their money that they, their family had produced. 
to the upkeep or even the rebuilding of the space. Now I have to tell you, one of my favorite synagogues I've ever visited is now the Museum of Jewish Miami. Um, often in Jewish life, we can build Holocaust museums before we can build museums of life, of what Jews have actually done. We built the um, American Holocaust Memorial Museum and opened in 1993, I believe, and the National Museum of American Jewish History just opened this year. It took another almost 20 years to do that. Well, the same is true in Miami. They had a big Holocaust Memorial Museum. It opened in the 70s. It wasn't until the mid-90s they opened a museum of Jewish Miami, and they repurposed an old synagogue. It was the gangster synagogue. And you have benches donated by Meyer Lansky. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the Bugsy Siegel and, the, and so on. I mean, and their names are like inscribed because <laughs> they gave the money for that, uh, for that space. So it's really fascinating how some things again don't change. Now what would happen in these early synagogues as they're spreading? Well, the prayer service is evolving in this period. The first formal siddur or written order of prayer that's specified isn't created until around the 9th century common era, beginning of the 800s. So you've got a long period of development where what's being done in the synagogue may not be the same from week to week. It's, people are writing the blessings. They're creating the prayers, not simply reciting what's been done before. We also find in this period <coughs> complaints about the synagogue as a place of mixing of genders. Now you think in a traditional synagogue you've got the women's section and the men's section and never the twain shall meet. But actually John Chrysostom, who was an early father figure uh, in the uh, early Catholic Church, Christian Church in general, uh, complains about the synagogue as a place of the sexes mixing. There's mixed seating. Well, again, some things were different. Now we do know that that separation of men and women, either by a machitza, a partition, or more commonly by putting the woman in the back, divided by a strong barrier, or up on a balcony behind a screen, that becomes very well established by the year 1000, perhaps under the influence of uh, Muslim empires and uh, Christian influence as well. Um, but the idea of having mixed seating was not unprecedented in Jewish life, if you look historically. And similarly, Chrysostom also complained that members of his synagogue kept going, uh, members of his church kept going to synagogue. They'd go there for Shabbat. They'd go there for the high holidays. And again, people showing up only for high holidays? Also, <laughs> not new in Jewish history. It's an interesting thought, though, to think that members of this Christian church were showing up at the synagogue to find out what the Jews were doing. In fact, the church would complain that they would rely on the Jews for setting Easter's date. <laughs> well, the line, again, between Christian and Jew was perhaps more flexible. In fact, one of the challenges in evaluating these synagogues is deciding, is this a synagogue that's a Jewish synagogue, a Christian meeting space, or a uh, what's called a Samaritan synagogue, which is uh, an offshoot of Judaism that goes back even a few hundred years before the temple was destroyed. Which is it? They might both have Hebrew and Greek inscriptions. It's not automatic. You have to read them carefully to find out what the references are. So what was the ethos of this middle period synagogue? Well, I want to throw on a text of rabbinic teaching called the Tosefta that tells you what to do, and more importantly, what not to do in the synagogue. One should not behave lightheartedly in a synagogue. One should not enter them in the heat because of the heat, or in the cold because of the cold, or in the rain because of the rain. They're not just a shelter. And one should not eat in them, or drink in them, or sleep in them, or stroll in them, or just relax and enjoy oneself in them. 
But one should read scriptures and study laws and engage in midrash and commentary in them. It should be a house of tefillah, a house of prayer, a house of midrash, a house of study, and a house of gathering to do those two other things, but not just to gather, but gather and say. And so it's in this period as well that the synagogue begins to be understood as a holy space. Not that the building itself needs to be preserved absolutely. After all, if a synagogue is on fire, what was the first thing people would do? It wasn't put out the fire to save the building. You run in to save the Torah scrolls. It was what was, again, what was in it was what was more important than the building itself. Surely you should stop that fire too, but the Torah scroll was of a whole other order of holiness compared to the building. Now through the Middle Ages, it fulfilled these three functions, a place of meeting, but more importantly, a place of prayer and a place of study. For example, you were allowed to raise objections to things that were going wrong in the community during services. It was one of the ways of getting yourself heard. You complain about the rabbi in the middle of the service. Interesting innovation, I'm glad to let go. Um, but we've also found that uh, these communities were major institutions. It was supported by the entire community through tzedakah, through charitable giving, and uh, it was the center of Jewish religious authority and community practice. It was not required for daily prayer, though. You didn't have to go to the synagogue to talk to God. All you needed was 10 men. It's called a minion, or the prayer form. And it did not need a building to be performed. You could read a Torah in an open space. You, could do, you had to do weddings outside. They weren't done in the holy. Again, the synagogue was a place of meeting that was useful. It was important, but it was not absolute or essential. Now, interestingly enough, Jewish architecture of synagogues was not uniform. It tended to vary based on where people were from. They would often build with similar builders. Uh, one of the famous stories is that in Florence, one of the major churches was designed by a Jew, and one of the major synagogues was designed by a Christian. You know, that was the architect who did the work. And uh, one of the Florence synagogues actually looks a little bit like a church in its layout, floor design. Um, again, we're a product of our environment and not simply living in a bubble going through history. There's a wonderful exhibit <laughs> at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem where they've recreated or even taken elements of four different synagogues and then rebuilt them in some limited fashion. And you can walk through and see what they look like in very different parts of the world, again, reflecting the very different cultures from which they come. You also find that the layout varies. The model that we're used to in an Ashkenazi setting where you have basically a stage or a bima at the front and then everyone else sitting outside uh, looking at that all the time isn't always the design. In a Sephardic synagogue, for example, it would be common to have the bima right in the middle. And you would have a stage at the front because that would be where the ark would be. People would pray facing that and bow facing that. But when it was time for the Torah reading, they would actually read it from the center and not from the front. Very interesting alternative model. Now, this being part of our surrounding world has continued into the modern period. There was a Moorish phase in American Jewish architecture where all the synagogues were designed to look like they were Eastern. And then you had the modern phase and the postmodern phase. You even had one designed by Frank Lloyd Wright in Philadelphia. And just like every other Frank Lloyd Wright, at least. <laughs> Same problem. Okay. Now, the other interesting thing you find is as Jews are living in larger and larger cities, it isn't just one communal synagogue. Part of that is the traditional restriction on walking on Shabbat. You have to walk 
uh, you can't ride, and so getting there for services would be a challenge, and so you make more than one. But also, of course, you get more mixing of populations as they're in larger cities, just like the Hungarian shul and the Romanian shul and the Moravian shul. Well, in Salonika, as one example, there were synagogues like this. There was Mallorca and Aragon and Otranto. Again, where are these cities? The cities from which the people are from. And there was even, I love this, there's Lisbon Yashan, the old Lisbon synagogue, and Lisbon Chadash, the new Lisbon synagogue. Now, some of them were produced by different generations of immigrants, but some of them were produced by splits. <laughs> so there's one group that calls itself the old Lisbon synagogue, and the other one is the new Lisbon synagogue. And this is, again, a tradition that's repeated itself you can often find congregations that were formed out of splits from other congregations because they either have the word emet, truth, or shalom, peace, or occasionally kadash, new. <laughs> now what happened in modern, in modern Jewish life? Well, we found many challenges to this old model of the synagogue. And as Ken mentioned in our announcements, next week I'll be talking more about the future of the synagogue. And in that, we'll delve into more depth into the challenges the synagogue faces today. But I want to highlight just four briefly. The first was the Enlightenment, this opening of new vistas and possibilities for thought, not simply conforming to traditional authority because it was old, because it was traditional, because this is the way we've always done it. Well, in fact, now that wasn't a good enough argument. You needed to have an argument that stood on its own two legs, because tradition wasn't only good for tradition's sake. And in the aftermath of the Enlightenment, the reform movement began to make changes. They changed the prayers. They didn't envision a return to a building of a Jerusalem temple. In fact, the reform movement began to call their buildings temples on purpose to say, we don't need a temple in Jerusalem anymore. This is our Jerusalem, they famously said about America. But they also removed the concept of religious law, religious, uh, the halakha, the authority that would force you to show up at synagogue that would force you to follow the ritual practices, that would force you to listen to and respect the rabbi. What they instead tried to do was create inspiration, positive motivation. They knew that in a secularized society you could choose to do it, but if you're not forced to do it, it doesn't have the same intensity. And ultimately, that subversive quality of the Enlightenment, asking questions, looking for reasons, began to challenge not just the structure, but the content as well, the what was in it, the belief. If this book wasn't given by God to Moses, but evolved over centuries, why are we reading the same thing every week? Maybe we should read something else. Now, the second challenge was the challenge of freedom. If you live in a society that does not force your attendance, that does not threaten you with excommunication if you refuse to show up, well, maybe you won't attend every week. Maybe you'll only attend twice a year. Maybe you won't even be a member. Maybe you won't even be Jewish. You can choose. You can choose to be Jewish without a synagogue, or you can choose even to not be anything. The third challenge was that of dispersion and diversity. You see, you're not just living in the shtetl with the one synagogue that everyone goes to. Even if people don't like it, that's where they go, because there's one option, and that's it. It's like Henry Ford and his, uh, his uh, Model T's, right? One color, that's it, take it or leave it. Now, it was also one shul because even in the neighborhood system of, 
American life in the 19th and 20th century, if you were following a traditional lifestyle, you were walking. You know, the orthodox answer to, well, I live too far from the synagogue, wasn't, well, we'll change the law so you can drive. The answer was, move. <laughs> or open a new one that you can walk to. There was no choice. There was no driving. There was no driving two blocks away and then walking. <laughs> you move. Well, the problem is, the people are living in more dispersed lives. They're not living in suburbia where nobody walks anywhere. And they're living in a very different world where they're not necessarily all in a poor community that needs to rely on each other. You get the model of dudes, you know, like country clubs. You get the model of keeping up with the non-Jewish neighbors. We want a big and gaudy building, not just a storefront, not somebody's house converted into something. We want something like our neighbors have, keeping up with the Joneses, right? And you even have these mixing of populations again where you get the dynamic of the Temple Bethel that's only German Reformed Jews, and the Temple Israel that's marketing to the Eastern European Jews, the growing market. And fourth, there are also Jewish alternatives to synagogue. Just as you don't need to go to synagogue by community force, there are other ways to be Jewish beyond Beit Tefillah, beyond the house of prayer. You can be involved in Jewish political activism in the early 20th century with the Workmen's Circle and the Jewish labor movement and secular Yiddish shulahs and all kinds of other institutions that used to exist in great numbers, educating sometimes 10 or 15% of the American Jewish children that were in school were in one of these schools, these Yiddish-speaking schools. You had the beginning of Jewish community centers that offered classes, and not always traditional classes, but certainly Jewish experiences. And in response, some synagogues tried to compete. They became what was called the synagogue center, also known as the shul with a pool and a school. <laughs> shul is synagogue, and then they had to expand their activities, so they added a school, and they added the pool. And the, I mean, really, they tried to do it all in one place. You could be a Jew by being part of the organized Jewish community, the federation world, the Jewish communal service. You could be a Zionist and connect to the state of Israel, a Jewish peoplehood independent of synagogues. In fact, you could live in the land of Israel or even in the state of Israel post-1948 and be Jewish all the time. Send your kids to a school that teaches them Jewish history. Speak a Jewish language. Read Jewish literature every time you open the newspaper. A friend of mine from America was living in Israel. And he asked a friend of his who was a native Israeli, so where are you going for Yom Kippur? And his friend thought he was asking him which beach he was going to, <laughs> and that was synagogue. Now the strengths of the synagogue are there too, despite all these challenges. We human beings need other people. Aristotle said, man is a social animal. The Bible says, it is not good for humanity to be alone. And we know from our own sage of our own day, who has probably been turned to much more often than Hillel or Solomon Schechter or anyone else, people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. We need a place of assembly at Beit Knesset. We need a place of study. One of the categories of people the rabbis did not like were the Amha'aris, the people of the land, the peasants who just didn't know any better. And one of the ways you could tell them, one of the ways you could prescribe them was to see what they called the synagogue. And what they were 
blamed the most for calling him was calling the Beit Tefillah, the house of prayer, the Beit Midrash, the house of holy study, the Beit Knesset, the house of assembly, they would call it a Beit Am, a house of the people. But for us, that's what it is. It's the Knesset, not the Beit. The Beit Am, the house of the people, for the people, by the people. And so I want to conclude by sharing some words with you that were offered at the dedication of a humanistic synagogue in 1969. It was a synagogue in this area. These words were written by our Rabbi Emeritus, Rabbi Daniel Friedman. I think they summarize the history and potential and power of the synagogue by telling you what it's all about. These walls will hear many words and sounds. They will ring with laughter and resound with music. They will know the high giggles of children and somber tones of grandfathers. They will hear our meditations and discussions and conversations, our truths and our lies. Yes, this room will witness acts of human dignity and integrity, but it will be exposed to mendacity and deceit if we permit ourselves to be less than truthful, less than rational, less than human. Our building will be no more sacred than ourselves. Bricks cannot transform men into saints. Buildings are the creation of men, the beautiful but mute testimony to our imaginations and skills. Once constructed, they await our presence to inform them with nobility or shame. The quality of our temple resides not in it, but in us. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.